you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, we'll be taking a look at uh, the musical tastes of high school students, what teens are listening to. Our Mariana Dale went out and talked with them and some interesting things they have to say about how they curate their playlist. That's all coming up. Next hour on Air Talk, uh, the Climate Conference. You just heard NPR's coverage of it. We're going to be talking about the City of L.A. local perspective on how Los Angeles is attempting to set the pace on response to climate change. But we begin with an audit from Los Angeles City Controller Kenneth Mejia's office in which it looked at the spending by by LAPD on its aerial support division. This its helicopters that um, we see flying over the city of Los Angeles. Typically, at least two of them are up at any given time, patrolling, watching over the streets of Los Angeles, uh, ready to respond when um, calls come in. But uh, much of the work that is done by the helicopters, according to uh, this audit, is not high priority and uh, perhaps could be better uh, done with less expensive tools. Joining us, the Chief of Accountability and Oversight for the L.A. City Controller's Office, Sergio Perez. Thank you very much, Mr. Perez, for joining us. Uh, First question for you is um, about the reason for conducting the audit. We know that the controller has been quite critical. In fact, much of his campaign was centered on criticism of, of LAPD spending and practices. What led aerial support like this to be um, to be the focus of of this um, of this audit? Good morning, Larry, and thank you so much for having me on and highlighting the work of our office and what we think is a pivotal and important audit uh, related to the functions of the LAPD and what we spend on it. I want to address in part your point about the controller's campaign because what the controller did when he was running for office, which resonated so clearly with more than 500,000 voters here in Los Angeles, is just highlight the number of dollars that we're spending on public safety. And this audit follows up in that similar vein in response to community outcry and requests of our office for an assessment of LAPD's helicopters. The LAPD's helicopters, as you noted, are a constant presence in the life of anybody who lives in Los Angeles. The drone of the helicopters, the pollution, the noise, um, depending on the neighborhoods that you live in, are a constant fixture of life here. And so in response to community calls for for this particular audit, we uh, tasked our civil service auditors, which is another important note here, right? These are professional auditors who were here long before Controller Mejia arrived. And uh, if the city is lucky because of the amount of talent and experience that exists on that team, they'll be here long after. And those auditors took a look at not only the expenses incurred by the LAPD's helicopter program, 
but ask questions that should have been asked decades ago when the program was started, which is what exactly is this getting us? What are the residents of Los Angeles getting for a $50 million annual investment in the pollution and noise and negative quality of life issues that come with it? What are we getting? One what thing we should uh, just mention, uh, yeah. oh, I was just going to say one of the things we should mention is in terms of, of resident complaints, uh, one of the things you know we've come across in, in talking about helicopter patrols on air talk is that a lot of time residents don't, they know there's a helicopter overhead, don't necessarily know what it is. And often it's television helicopters or for people who live in communities near downtown Los Angeles, particularly near air airports, their commercial helicopter flights. So yeah, LAPD has up, as I understand at minimum, according to this audit, two helicopters over the entirety of Los Angeles. But at any given time, there are a lot more helicopters over the city of LA than just the two of LAPD. Yeah, that's a fair point, Larry. That's why we're working and we'll soon be launching a data tool, a map that will allow folks for, for helicopter LAPD helicopter flights over the last three years to look up their address, look up a particular day, so they can find out whether it was an LAPD helicopter or not. Um, our audit did identify that there is a, a great amount of helicopter flight time directed to what is called, quote unquote, dedicated patrols. These are highly discretionary patrols that aren't in response to particular incidents, um, but are at the discretion of the flight crew and those who supervise them. We think that there's a link between that discretionary flight time and the disproportionate amount of time that helicopters are spending in certain communities when compared to other areas and levels of alleged crime. Yeah, so I was going to ask. I was going to yeah. ask about what the West Valley of the San Fernando Valley, because that's one of the areas heavily patrolled. But isn't West Valley a comparatively low crime area? You might understand how areas that have higher reports of crime would have patrols there because um, you want them to be able to respond in areas that are more prone to crime. But how does West Valley end up in there? Well, and I, and I want to highlight two issues to that, right? West Valley is the site of the Van Nuys Airport. It's near there. And we think that the fact that helicopters are taking off and landing in that particular region might impact that. That makes sense. Effect. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. But to your point about the relationship between alleged crimes and helicopter activity, we found that there was less of a relationship there when it comes to neighborhoods um, in South L.A. and in East L.A. And that means that compared to other reports of crime, and we're talking about the most serious crime, uh, that uh, that helicopters are spending an outsized time in those communities. Right? But don't they have not... higher rates of, of, of crime than other? So wouldn't you want to have helicopters that would be over areas that are higher crime so that they could have quicker response? Oh, what I'm stressing to you, Larry, is that when compared to other neighborhoods and uh, allegations of crime in those neighborhoods, there is less of a relationship between the, the, the alleged crimes and helicopter flight time. So if you take a look at the audit, you'll see that there are areas that have reports of crime also, but the helicopters are not spending as much time there. So there is a gap, a lack of relationship between alleged criminal activity and helicopter flight time. And it may not be the data that is guiding those decisions. 
it may be bias or false assumptions about safety in those neighborhoods. And one final point, we also found a lack of data to support the idea that these helicopters are having any impact on our public safety, right? So I note that you are highlighting the fact that helicopters might be able to respond if they're in the air, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The data is just not there for, for that. And in fact, only 1% of total flights have anything to do with weapons. Um, and that doesn't mean that these helicopters have a causal impact when there's a weapon at issue, right? We don't have the data and the LAPD okay. hasn't done oh, the work. Oh, let's back up just a second. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's say you, you have um, uh, a burglary that takes place, commercial structure, there are no patrol cars nearby, but you got one of those two helicopters that's in the air. So it's able to get there more quickly than the patrol car, able to put a light down, try and catch the people who've, who've conducted it. Now, I don't know how that would show up in a study or how you would quantify that, but is, is it your contention when events like that occur that the helicopters are not getting there before the patrol cars or that they're getting there before the patrol cars and they're still not seeing arrests? What I, I'm, I'm trying to drill down a little bit to understand because I think for many people hearing this, they would think, well, if you've got a helicopter in the air, it goes most, much faster than a patrol car. And if there are no patrol cars that are there to respond to an incident that's called in, why wouldn't the helicopter be able to get there more quickly and raise the odds of an apprehension? Uh, Larry, the simple point of our audit directly at that issue is that there is no persuasive empirical evidence that shows a clear link between helicopter patrols, crime response, and crime reduction. Now, there is a whole host of potential data that could be gathered by the LAPD on a routine basis from incident to incident, like the incident you just described, from month to month, year to year, that might help us understand what if any impact those helicopters are having on the scenario you just described or scenarios like it. Because the LAPD has not done that work, then we are left to quote unquote common sense assumptions about what helicopters can and can't do and how they may or may not impact those kinds of situations. What kind of staffing do you think it would take to do that? I'm trying to think of how many people um, to track every response of a helicopter and how the response of that, uh, the apprehension rate, for example, compared to a ground patrol unit. Now, you'd have to factor in what's the distance of the patrol car versus the response time. I mean, that's that's some pretty complex analysis. Um, are there departments that are that are doing that that would be good templates for LAPD to look at? I appreciate that question, Larry, and I want to highlight for you and, and listeners, right? I am someone who has spent more than a decade in law enforcement oversight. I began my career with the U.S. Department of Justice within the Civil Rights Division, assessing the practices of law enforcement agencies across the country. And from 2020 through 2022, I was the executive director of Orange County's chief oversight agency over the sheriff's department there. Um, and I can stress to you that the LAPD has a very large helicopter program, much larger than any other law enforcement agency in the United States. 17 helicopters, 90 staff members. The kind of data that we're talking about here should be routinely collected within incident reports, which they are already filling out. 
And uh, the LAPD, like a lot of law enforcement agencies, likes to tout that it is data forward, data centric. So the kind of recommendations that are in our audit that get at the necessary data collection that is here, we think that capacity is likely still there within the LAPD. It is already there within okay. the LAPD. So you just There's you would just need the me, software to, to no, no I just want to clarify. So yeah. you're saying the data is there, they just need the software um, to be able to run it and do the analysis you're calling for. Oh no, um, what I'm saying is they haven't started to collect the data despite the fact that this is not a pilot program, right? We've had oh, helicopters okay. here in the city for decades upon decades. Uh, but there's never been sort of uh, a will to take a look at actual performance metrics for these helicopters. Instead, there's been um, there's been an acceptance of quote unquote common sense, right? LA is big. LA has traffic. There are certain areas in LA that are particularly traffic laden, and maybe there's more crime there. So we need helicopters. But that's all common sense. Uh, that, those are all common sense sets of assumptions that may not be true once we look at the data. And we're well into the 21st century. We have a very well-funded law enforcement agency and a helicopter program that is very well-resourced, right? At $50 million a year, this helicopter program is getting more dollars than 14 other city departments. And that gap is growing. And so the capacity is there, the resources are there, You'd have to ask the LAPD why they haven't gone through the effort to collect and make use of the data. So let me just clarify. You're, you're saying that when arrest reports are filled out or incident reports are filled out, that you could have how the helicopter factored into that, and then you'd run an analysis of the data that's collected to determine the efficiency and effectiveness of the air support. Is that what you're saying? That, that's exactly what I'm saying. And our auditors expected to find some processes already in place that would um, that would inform the questions they were asking. Uh, but there was nothing of substance there. We're talking with uh, Sergio Perez, who is the chief of accountability and oversight for the L.A. City Controller's Office, Controller Kenneth Mejia. Um, we have Alex in Altadena says, uh, I have a company that does drone that provides drones. Um, I suggest we replace helicopters with drones or augment with drones. Um Mr. Perez, you, you, this um, didn't look at the use of drones by the department, but is that something that could be a more cost-effective way of providing aerial support? You know, those are questions that I believe will be better placed to the community um, and to the LAPD and other stakeholders here at the city. The central question still is, what is any of this getting us, right? Um, and it's not about... Uh, trading one thing for another, we really have to understand the community's public safety needs, the relationship between resources committed to public safety needs and other needs of the city, and uh, how, how it all sort of susses out in the end. And what we need to do is, is have a data-specific approach. So what is any of this getting us? What is the impact of it? And, and how much of it do we want? Because again, helicopters or programs like this, they not only come with the monetary costs we've been discussing, but with serious environmental costs also, right? When, These helicopters, they burn a lot of fuel and, and they release noise. a lot of carbon dioxide into the air. 
and noise, of course. Um, And you're probably aware of the polling that's been done by Loyola Marymount University Center for the Study of Los Angeles, which generally shows satisfaction for funding of LAPD. I know there are activists in the city who uh, raise the issues about the size of LAPD's budget and are critical of it. But when you look at the overall city of Los Angeles, do you you really feel like Angelinos think that the department spends too much money? I feel like Angelinos would be best served by more hard, objective data. Uh, Because again, when you ask folks through surveys and other kinds of assessments, how they feel, what they think, what their perception is, the results are directly impacted by the type of information that is publicly available. And like what we have found here with this helicopter program, I think it when you scratch the surface of a lot of city programs, including those within the public safety space, what you have is not a lot of transparency, not a lot of hard data that will allow the folks who are paying for this ser- these services, right? Taxpayers like myself, I live in Echo Park, uh, a sense of exactly what they're getting for that investment. So I'm not surprised by those survey results, uh, but what I would stress is that we all need more objective, hard, clear data to help guide those impressions, and that's what these audits do. Mr. Perez, thank you very much. We appreciate your being with us today and talking about the results of the audit released yesterday from the Office of Controller Kenneth Mejia. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's Sergio Perez, Chief of Accountability and Oversight, L.A. City Controller's Office. We invited LAPD to join us, but unfortunately they didn't provide anyone. They did release a statement after the audits released yesterday. Um, the uh, chief, LAPD Chief Michael Moore, said the department will review the final report. Says helicopters play a critical role in our public safety mission. He added their flights frequently result in their arrival at calls for service ahead of our patrols, aiding responding officers with critical information and situational awareness. Air support also provides added patrols to detect and prevent crimes, including residential burglaries, while also responding to officers' assistance calls involving violent and highly dangerous situations. Comments of LAPD Chief Michael Moore, and of course, when the chief next joins us, we'll ask him about the results of the audit from the controller. It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. Coming up, we turn our attention to what uh, teens are listening to in Southern California. Our Mariana Dale went out and talked with them in this era of TikTok and Spotify playlists and algorithms. How do teens find the music they like and put on their playlists? We'll be back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. The Korean indie rock band Wave to Earth, the song Light, released as a single just about four years ago, and an example of just one song listened to by Southern California teens who have particularly eclectic tastes in music. Much of the reason for that, what they can find on TikTok and Spotify's algorithms, among other things, our Mariana Dale, LA's K-12 education reporter, went out to talk to Southern California high school students to get a sense of what they're listening to and her piece, More Vibes, listen to music like an LA high school student is the result. Mariana, good morning. Good morning, Larry. So this sounds like a particularly fun assignment that you undertook. Uh, Share with us how you went about it and and, um, the ways that you met the students that you interviewed. Yeah, so I spend a lot of time thinking about how education impacts students. And a lot of time it's in really, you know, serious ways. I'm at school board meetings. We're talking a lot about mental health and test scores. But I thought this was a fun opportunity to talk to students about something that they really cared about and let them drive the conversation. So I talked to students from four different high schools in Southern California, uh, up in the San Fernando Valley. I went to San Fernando Senior High School school, all the way down to the South Bay at West High School. And then uh, thanks to the internet, I had the input from a couple of more far-flung schools, including Idlewild Arts Academy, which is in the San Jacinto Mountains. And the question was really simple. It was just tell me what you're listening to this year. And the range, you know, was enormous. It was everything (laughs) from like 1950s jazz standards to like the latest K-pop. You had one guy who said he'd been listening to Misty, the classic recording, and I thought, wow, I'm impressed. He really, he knows his musical history. I mean, one of the things that's so different about this generation, and even for millennials, is um, that with the general collapse of, of pop music radio, you just have such a wide array of of places where people get music. And it seems to me we've never had a generation with as arguably eclectic a taste in music as do teens today. Absolutely. And I think I even came in with some misperceptions about, you know, how people use TikTok, for example, you would think that maybe you're only hearing like the latest hits on TikTok. And one anecdote that stood out to me was that uh, the student Jocelyn Mateos told me about how she really got into like alternative and like emo music from the aughts because of TikTok, uh, particularly this band Pierce the Veil, which was actually based in San Diego. They started in 2006, but last year 
one of their songs from like 2012 blew up on TikTok. And so they went from not having put out any new music since 2016 to actually releasing a brand new album in 2023. And, you know, I'm not I'm not a music reporter, but you would think that certainly having a moment like that on the Internet has to contribute <laughs> to a band like that's ability to yeah. put out new music after so long. You've compiled a playlist curated by the students that you interviewed available at LAS.com. You give us just a few examples of what's on the list. Yeah, we asked every student to give us their their top two songs. So I think a fun surprise was uh, Chiquitita from ABBA from their 1979 album. Uh, Jesse Cordero actually listens to that song on vinyl. Um, and then I also, there's quite a few uh, J-pop or Japanese pop music songs on there, uh, both from the 1980s. A student, uh, Yumiko Kasai at West High School, got into that music because of her mom. And then uh, one of her peers actually likes more contemporary J-pop. He says it helps him practice his Japanese. That's uh, Haruto Asami. We're talking with K-12 education reporter Mariana Dale of LAist, whose recent piece titled More Vibes, Listen to Music Like an L.A. High School Student details her conversations with students across greater Los Angeles. Also joining us is Kelsey Herzog, music-centric content creator under the account The Yellow Button. She posts to social platforms like TikTok and Twitch. Kelsey, good to have you with us. Hi, thanks for having me today. I was wondering, uh, did the pandemic, when so many students were studying at home, particularly in urban areas, do you think that had a significant effect in, in terms of uh, the music they were exposed to or their listening habits, which might have affected the range of tunes on their playlists? I think so. I feel like the pandemic kind of brought a whole new community together of people who just really enjoyed music and wanting to have that sense of community, but not actually being in person with people. And I feel like music just has a great way of doing that for everyone all around the world. And I just think it was actually a really community-driven time, even though we weren't physically all together. And explain a bit about how the social communities on, on TikTok and other platforms affect people's ability to find what you might consider to be more obscure music or or a wide range of international music how does how does that sort of reinforcement in the community aspect of social make that not only possible but a more pleasant experience i would just say music is so accessible nowadays and it's so easy for anyone to find any type of music like you guys were just talking about tiktok and how tiktok is so broad you could find any genre on there you could go down rabbit holes and find all types of obscure music and even going down Spotify rabbit holes and just discovering so many niche genres and different types of communities within those genres. And it's just really a fun experience. All right. Uh, I'd love to hear from listeners uh, some of the things that if if you're a teenager, you happen to be off school today, or uh, you're a parent of a teen, some of the things you find most interesting about the musical choices of your teen. What is it that maybe surprises you about their taste in music and the ways in which they get their music? 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can Email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Kelsey, uh, what what are some of the ways that Spotify algorithms and TikTok algorithms 
drive musical taste? Because I, I would expect that that might lead people down to particular genre uh, rabbit holes and that the genres would be only more reinforced, maybe make their music listening less eclectic. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Why? I just feel like kids are always searching for new sounds and something new in just today's society. And I feel like Spotify can definitely do a good job of helping you with that with the fans also like tab on artist pages, or even if you make specific playlists, there's a little tab at the bottom that says just like, oh, other songs you might also like. And it's just the algorithm sometimes knows what you like and will be listening to. And there's just so many different tools within Spotify that you can use to help you find new music. I feel like TikTok is the same way where it kind of learns what you like and can kind of help you just seek out random music and genres that you wouldn't really find before. And it's just kind of given to you through the algorithm. How do live performances, particularly for young people that live in larger cities where there are significant numbers of music venues, how does that factor into their taste? I feel like being able to go to local shows can really help even a younger audience find newer artists. Like I have gone to so many local shows in my area and discovered artists that I didn't even know existed and they became some of my favorites. So I feel like just being able to go out in person and get physical connection with music really helps kind of build that niche genre interest that you probably wouldn't be able to find online. As someone who's not on TikTok and is pretty ignorant of it, I, I still have this um, stereotype that TikTok is heavily driven by the appearance of the performers, that, that the look is a huge factor because it's a, it's a visual platform. Uh, how much of that does that factor in or how much of that is, is uh, a myth? I would say it's probably half true, half a myth. I feel like a lot of it is kind of trust within the people that you follow on TikTok. So if you're following something who, someone who talks about music, you really trust their taste and kind of what they're giving out to the world and their recommendations. And it's just kind of something you build trust over time with the people that you follow online. Let's talk with Candace in Lake Elsinore. Good to have you with us. Candace, uh, what kind of music does your son listen to? So much to our newfound surprise, our son listens to classical and big band swing and jazz music. Um, He plays an instrument in school. He is a sophomore in high school, so he's that impressionable 15-year-old age. Um, And I always had this idea that our... Um, society and culture has an impact on our teenagers to listen to more mainstream, maybe inappropriate or what I would deem inappropriate. Um, And much to our surprise, we recently found out that he mostly listens to classical and jazz and swing and big bands. That's so funny. Uh, Candace, I relate to you. I have a 22-year-old son, and he came in the other day and wanted to ask me about a Tommy Dorsey song he heard. Now, this goes back to his great-grandfather's era, but he he listens to a lot of that music, just like your son does as well. And he played in the jazz band in high school, played tenor saxophone, so, you know, part of it is one 
one's own musical in- uh, interest if you play an instrument. Candace, I appreciate that. 866-893-5722 if you want to share what it is that your teen is listening to, perhaps to your surprise as a parent. 866-893-5722. Mariana, in your reporting, you found that as well, that I can't recall if classical was in the mix, but uh, but certainly jazz was in the mix, both new jazz from younger artists as well as classics. Yeah, so one artist I heard about from several students, uh, she's Icelandic. Her name is Leve. It's spelled L-A-U-F-E-Y. And she has an enormous Gen Z following. And yeah, her music sounds really, really old school, I guess I would say. She has this very beautiful classical voice. She also has these like uh, orchestral backgrounds in a lot of her music. And the students I listened to just, just loved it. All right. Uh, and and uh, let me go back to Kelsey Herzog of the Yellow Button, uh, music-centric content creator. As, as you look at all the range of, of music that people are listening to, do you think it makes it harder for a particular artist to break through with mass appeal? Obviously, you know, we've got Taylor Swift, we've got Beyonce, we've got the huge k-pop groups but is it harder now to break through given the diversity of acts that are out there i do think so yeah just like you said there's just so many different artists and sounds that you just hear so much of and music is so accessible so it's there's so many artists out there and i feel like one of the main ways to kind of get yourself out there is through tiktok and it's just such a different way of marketing than it was back in the day where you could get radio airplay or just going to live shows and stuff like that but a lot of today's marketing with kind of getting your band out there is through tiktok and just social media so definitely a little bit tougher today than it was even a few years ago rusty driving on the san diego freeway says she's a swing dance teacher says i have a number of teens in my class they absolutely love swing that's rusty thank you very much and samantha and sherman oak says i wonder if the breadth wide breadth of musical interests is because it provides a range of emotional support for kids particularly coming out of the COVID lockdown that's a very good a very good point i think you know for young people music has always provided emotional support, uh, a mirror to reflect some of the concerns, the interests, the strong feelings that teens are, are feeling as they go through the period of their life. And the fact that now it's so much easier to find your community of people that dig what you dig, that you can share that experience with them, um, makes for a whole, I think, richer experience than those of us that got much of our music from radio or or listening by ourselves or with friends to, to records. Um, the social aspect of it is just a, a whole very exciting dynamic. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. That's Mariana Dale, LASK through 12 education reporter. She went out and talked to Southern California high school students for her LAist piece, More Vibes. Listen to music like an LA high school student and my thanks to music centric content creator Kelsey Herzog her account is the yellow button she posts to social platforms including TikTok and Twitch we go out with Space Song by the dream pop band Beach House released uh, just about eight years ago part of their album Depression Cherry let's listen
It's Air Talk on LA State 89.3. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. You never know what's going to lead to a freewheeling conversation among our AirTalk production team when we meet in the morning and then often meet after the show uh, just before noon. And someone will throw out a topic which may seem absolutely mundane, and it just catches fire. Such was the case with talking about people's preferred cooking oils. You might think, what in the, why, why would this be of interest? And yet um, our producers waxed poetic on what particular oil was closest to their heart and what they liked about it. And um, the whole thing went, I think, for 20 minutes on cooking oil. So we thought, why not share this with you? So whether you're a fan of corn or canola or soybean or peanut, we want to hear from you. What particular oil is your default? Extra virgin olive oil? We want to hear and what the reasons are, the type of cooking you do and why that oil is particularly effective for the type of cooking you do. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, when you uh, respond via email at atcomments at las.com. Joining us, the very impressive chef Naisha Arrington. I say that not only because of her culinary skills, but she survives working with Gordon Ramsay on Next Level Chef, which is on the Fox Network. The third season premiere comes up late next month. Chef Arrington, so good to have you with us again on Air Talk. Oh, my absolute pleasure and honor. I appreciate it. So uh, share with us, what are some of your favorite oils that you like cooking with and for what particular types of food? Yeah. And I, I, you know, I want to say also, yeah, thank you again for mentioning Next Level Chef. Um, The season four premieres January 28th. It's very exciting. And season uh, four. Wow. I didn't realize you're on to four. That's good to know. Yeah. On to four. And it was the highest rated show on Fox last season. So it's crushing it. And I'm really proud of the teams and the culinary um, that's coming out of that. 
um, kitchen. And it's a topic, you know, cooking oils that I talk about often on the show and often in my social circle. So um, when the topic came across um, for me to participate in the conversation, I was absolutely thrilled. I couldn't say yes quick enough. <laughs> That's so, great. Um, you know, it's interesting because there's so much controversy and so much, you know, back and forth on, you know, health benefits, nutrition, flavor, you know, is it just from a culinary perspective? Is it from a health perspective? And I think, you know, when I think about, um, you know, what cooking oils I grab, generally speaking, um, you know, I have to ask myself, what am I using it for? Um, you know, is it long-term cooking? Is it short-term cooking? Is it high heat? Is it low heat? Um, is it any cooking at all? So, you know, the top three go-tos that are in my kitchen pantry are number one, I probably grab avocado oil the most um, from a health perspective. Um, and I'll go into the reasons yeah, why. Yeah, and okay. then after that, um, you know, I, I generally use olive oil for a medium sort of application, not high, high heat cooking. It tends to break down. Um, and you know, peanut oil I'll generally use for frying, um, you know, if there's not an allergy there. Um, and, you know, also grapeseed oil I use pretty often as well for like dressings and just like general sauteing um, and kind of an all-purpose oil. Let's go back to your favorite avocado oil, which is high in monosaturated fat, which is which is the healthy fat that we um, we benefit from. What sort of flavor, if any, does avocado oil impart? I think we just yeah, lost. Oh, you're there. Okay, great. No, sorry about that. Um, yeah, it doesn't actually impart a ton of um, flavor necessarily. Uh, you know, it has a round, I would say if it has any sort of flavor, I, I like to think of, I get a little bit right brain in my articulation of how I approach flavor, but I would say it's a rounder oil in that, um, you know, the viscosity is really beautiful. It's not too sharp. You know, when I think about olive oil, I think about peppery. I think about high floral notes. But when I think about avocado oil, I'd say it has a nice sort of round flavor. It takes on um, heat very well. It has a very high smoke point around, um, you know, over 500 degrees generally. So really nice for, for like, you could even deep fry in it, but it tends to be a little bit on the pricier side. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, it's my go-to oil for like high heat um, sauteing generally. All right. As you're describing the characteristics of the oils, I was thinking about all these places that have opened up similar to wine tasting rooms for olive oil tasting. I don't know if you've noticed that, Chef, but this has become a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really cool. You go to some grocery stores, you know, and, and it's such a way, you know, there's a, a lot of conversation around what is green and what does it mean to be green? Um, you know, and a lot of times that comes down to packaging, you know, how are these olive oils being stored? Where are they being stored? What temperature are they next to your stove becoming rancid quicker? Quicker Are they in cooler, you know, darker environments? And um, what's cool in the grocery stores is they have um, these dispensers similar to the tastings, um, like wine tastings, where you can dispense your own olive oils you know um so i think that's pretty cool in terms yeah. of you know, 
passing down the economical value and, um, you know, getting them into those dark glass jars to protect the oils. But I'm a big fan of olive oil. You know, I tend to use olive oil for, you know, medium temperature cooking, um, you know, generally using it for more Italian forward um, dishes. I think it has a very robust flavor and depending on where you're getting your olive oil from, um, you know, it could be more on the peppery side, more on the floral side. Um, but I like to use it in vinaigrettes also, but I'll cut the olive oil with like a grapeseed or a neutral oil because it is so, you know, you know, when you're having olive oil, there yeah. is unlike avocado oil there, you know it. And for me, I'm, I'm a fan because of the health benefits, you know, it's very, very rich in vitamin E, which we all know is very, um, great for the hair, the skin, the nails, um, but, you know, for me, I'll take like an ounce of olive oil and, and just drink it straight in the morning, which helps, yeah. you know, with digestion. Yeah. yeah, it's it's I've been on that for a few months now, and it's been so incredible just for like longevity purposes and um, and anti-inflammatory purposes um, and super rich in antioxidants. So um, I'm a big fan of olive oil. We're talking with Chef Naisha Arrington. She is a judge on Next Level Chef on Fox. Uh, she herself is chef and culinary creative. I'd like to hear from you. What cooking oils do you use for which particular applications, which types of foods, and uh, what is it you particularly like about the characteristics of that oil? We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can can also email us at atcomments at elias.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in just a minute. Forty-some years ago, when I first started at what's now LAS 89.3, there was a barbecue place in Pasadena, not far from work, where I'd sometimes go for lunch. And they had these incredible, um, crisp on the outside, tender on the inside French fries that they made. The barbecue was was middling, but the French fries were incredible. And and so I asked uh, the owner of the restaurant, I said, how, how do you do your French fries? He said, peanut oil. Peanut oil is the secret. Well, that's the first I'd ever heard of peanut oil in cooking. And of course, it is known for uh, some of the advantages that it provides, particularly with deep frying. Just one example of the oils that we're talking about in this segment on cooking oils. And we like to hear from you, your favorites, why and for what types of food. We're at 866-893-5722. With us is Chef Naisha Arrington of Next Level Chef on Fox and herself, Southern California-based chef and culinary creative. Uh, chef Arrington, uh, those French fries were incredible. I had no idea peanut oil was uh, did such a great job with deep frying. Yeah, I'd say, honestly, most, you know, average consumers don't, I think, in the grocery stores and, and growing up, you know, I always saw my parents using vegetable oil or canola oil or even shortening, you know, which is uh, saturated fat. But I think a lot of the studies 
um, that have come out more recently are have come away from those canola oils and vegetable oils and are, I think, from a health perspective, but really even just from a culinary perspective, there's nothing like frying in peanut oil to give you this very... Um, what, what we call it GBD, golden brown and delicious um, effect <laughs> it's <own> to frying, <laughs> a beautiful acronym. And, um, you know, it has an amazing smoke point. It takes on heat very well. As we know, when you apply heat to oils, you know, that's generally going to be your barometer for which oil to choose. Um, oils tend to break down at different, what we call smoke points. And this one has a an average spoke point of around 450 to 475. So it, it takes on heat very well um, before it breaks down. And it has a nice, I'd say almost um, light nutty flavor to it. Um, you know, it doesn't impart a ton of flavor, you know, something like sesame oil is a predominantly, you know, you know, you're eating sesame oil. That's very, very nutty, but this has a very uh, light, pleasurable, nutty note to it, which I appreciate. Um, but yeah, incredible for fries, incredible for just for anything really squash blossoms, fried chicken. Um, you know, and I always used to see my grandparents and my mom, um, after frying, you know, let the oil settle and, and, and pour it into the, right back into the bottle, yeah, strain it, yeah. use it again. You know, it has a great shelf life. Let's uh, bring a listener in. This is Shabazz in Inglewood. Good to have you with us. What kind of cooking oils do you lean toward? Well, for, for general cooking, I, I tend to, of course, gravitate towards the oils that have the highest uh, smoking points. Um, but more importantly, um, I look for oils that have the non GMO verified logo on them, due, really due to the vagueness of a lot of these um, uh, vegetable oil blends. And, you know, I really think it's important to address the, you know, the, the fact that there are bioengineered ingredients kind of slipping into our everyday lives, including our cooking oils. So when it comes to soy and canola, all those things, and or vegetable blends, I look for the non-GMO verified logo on my cooking oils. Shabazz, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Beth also emailed similarly and said, we use avocado, olive, and peanut oil, and I'm wondering which oils are the least GMO, um, Chef uh, Arrington. Yeah, that's an interesting question because, you know, most, um, I hate to say it, most canola crops are uh, generally modified, um, you know, and they do that to improve the sort of oil quality and stability and, um, you know, those plants, they're grown with the herbicides and pesticides. So, you know, uh, if we're saying what is a good substitute for canola, uh, you know, I'm going to say peanut um, for high temperature and frying, um, if you need that sort of economic value, right, because I think a lot of times we're grabbing that vegetable oil or canola because it's it's economical, but I would say peanuts, probably the best bet, you know, the, the olive oils, the avocados tend to be a little bit pricier, but they're so much better for longevity of health. Uh, Omri and Beverly Hill said, I use rendered beef fat instead of oil. It's my secret weapon. You know, we haven't talked about butter or lard or, or other, uh, you know, ways in lieu of oil. Chef Harrington, your, your thoughts about when those are most appropriate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, beef tallow is, it's incredible. You know, I think that you don't want to go in excess. I think, you know, it makes sense when you're cooking beef to use like, um, 
you know, byproduct of that animal to um, ensure that you get this beautiful umami and Maillard effect or this caramelization of the meat. Really incredible. I tend to use um, beef tallow or beef fat in tandem with um, butter as well to get a really beautiful caramelization on the meat. Um, we just have to remember these are, you know, saturated fats. Um, you know, most saturated fats, they solidify at room temperature. That's generally how you know that it is a, um, a fat because it has that single, they have the bond. And so, um, you know, like butter, you know, coconut oil, palm oil, these are all like examples of that, um, which, could be, you know, long-term have some, you know, health concerns, but I think in moderation, just like anything, um, it's, you know, flavor forward always. Um, but yeah, I'm a big proponent. I love beef tallow. Uh, Nikki and Ladera Ranch said, my children have soy allergies and I never know what oil to use because vegetable oil is soy. Do you have suggestions on the best options for all purpose baking oils? Hmm. Yeah, again, I think um, avocado is a, and a really great oil and it's, it's pretty neutral. So you can use that as a substitute in baking as well. Um, even coconut oil, um, you know, in, in moderation is good as well. All right. Uh, I want to thank our listeners for weighing in with their thoughts about all the different types of cooking oil. Chef Arrington, great to have you with us again. I look forward to the next time we have an opportunity to talk. Thanks so much. Oh, likewise, Larry. Happy holidays. You thank too. You I appreciate yeah, it. Chef Naisha Arrington, chef, culinary creative, and judge on the Fox television series Next Level Chef which premieres late January with its brand new season. And after it airs on Fox Network, it uh, streams on Hulu the next day. Much to come in the second hour of Air Talk. I'll tell you about that momentarily here on Air Talk, Southern California's biggest conversation. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Just over 30 years ago, 150 plus countries signed a UN treaty to limit the rise of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the first of what were known as the Conference of the Parties to that agreement took place in 1995. Now we are at COP28 
which has been going on for two years. We're going to be talking about what's been under discussion in Dubai and some of the biggest challenges there and what Southern California's role is in climate consciousness and contribution versus what's happening internationally. Joining us is the president and CEO of the L.A. Cleantech Incubator, Matt Peterson. He's been in Dubai for COP28. Matt, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Larry. So I, I understand the talks are going a bit over time to try and come up with an agreement. What what seems to be the sticking point? Well, Larry, the real sticking point uh, is uh, Sultan Jabbar, who is the president of COP28 on behalf of uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, put out a draft declaration uh, yesterday or two days ago that removed the language around phasing out fossil fuels to be able to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015's commitment to getting to keeping temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is seen by the scientific community as really a critical tipping point as we see the increasing impacts of the climate crisis from extreme heat and weather and sea level rise and, and drought. And so this is really where uh, everybody is. Uh, there was a promise uh, earlier today, uh, Dubai time, that there was going to be a new draft declaration uh, I haven't seen it yet. I think it's about to hit the wire soon. Um, and the final negotiations will be centered around how do we get to that language that the global community commits to phasing out fossil fuels to be able to ensure humanity just doesn't survive but thrives on this planet. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, what I was hearing the characterization is that the emphasis needs to be on emissions, not the consumption of fossil fuel. Is, it, is that a fair characterization of what uh, United Arab Emirates and, and others holding that view have been espousing? That is part of the uh, argument, of course. And, and, you know, if you've read the news, uh, um, you would see there was a, a leaked audio from uh, a conversation uh, between former Prime Minister Mary Robinson and uh, uh, the Sultan, uh, the COP president, where he dismissed the science around, uh, you know, what, that phasing out fossil fuels will help us keep temperature rise to 1.5 degrees and that what do you want? He, one of his statements was, what do you want us to go back to the cave, uh, cave age, uh, go back to living in caves? And and so I think that's part of it is, <clears throat> I mean, there's realistically, of course, there's going to be phasing out and phasing down of use of fossil fuels. We're not going to do it overnight. It's a decades long transition, but we need to move in that direction with urgency and certainty. And I think that's really what most of the global community is looking for out of this uh, declaration. Having just returned, what's your sense of the tenor of COP28 versus previous ones? Well, I, you know, I've been to several. The first UN Global Summit I went to was in 2002. Um, uh, and when I worked for then Mayor Garcetti, it was at Paris uh, for in 2015. And since have been at several of the last uh, few COPs. And I, you know, I think the sense of concern, of course, of climate science and the realities of what we're seeing of the impacts of the climate crisis are being felt more and more severely and intensely. We know with extreme heat in particular, the hottest uh, year again on record uh, was this last year. And at the same time, there was some always, uh, you know, the cognitive dissonance required to push forth in the face of, of alarming reality and, and the science with the hope of what we can do to turn things around by 
getting off of fossil fuels. There was a tripling, a commitment to triple the investment in renewable energy. Um, California and Los Angeles had a strong delegation in COP uh, at in Dubai at the COP28, showing how California and Los Angeles are leading the way. We know uh, how much uh, our leadership matters. There was the commitment the first day put forth in creating a loss and damages fund for the global south or developing world that is feeling the impacts of, of the U.S. and China's and, and Europe's growth that is impacting uh, uh, frontline communities in, in these, these, these nations. And then the, there was really a strong showing of mayors from around the world, given local climate action is where things are implemented. Uh, in cities and local governments, um, you know, there was really for the first time mayors were on the official agenda uh, of the COP uh, conversation in the first couple of days. So those were the sort of the hopeful points. And there was also hundreds of startups and to the credit of, of the host nation, they really emphasized in trying to have clean tech startups, not just from the US and Europe, but from Africa, South America, Southeast Asia and around the world. You know, there's the narrative uh, that's out there that low-hanging fruit is is pretty much being harvested when it comes to electric vehicles and to alternative energy, and that we're starting to reach a plateau. That it's going to be uh, much harder than it had been had been touted for us to make the conversion to uh, net zero carbon by the deadline established. And I wonder if you could respond to that, to concerns that you know we're seeing challenges with with offshore wind, particularly uh, getting enough renewable energy as reliable as necessary, uh, even here in the United States, let alone in developing countries, and and that it, it, that the goals that are being set are just not realistic. Well, if, thanks for asking, Larry. I think that uh, the reality is, yes, I mean, we are facing some headwinds at the moment uh, with inflation uh, and the efforts of the Fed to uh, increased interest rates to slow inflation, that has an impact on uh, some renewable energy projects, uh, as you can imagine. I think as we see with electric vehicles, um, early adopters, uh, we're moving beyond that and we're seeing, we still have enormous growth. I think it's slowed a little bit uh, nationally, but as we go from early adopters of electric vehicles to the next uh, level of, of penetration in the market, uh, for EV drivers, how do we ensure that charging infrastructure is in place, that uh, it's reliable, and it's where people need it um, when they need it? Uh, yet, when someone gets behind the wheel of an electric vehicle, they quickly realize that range anxiety is not what they thought it would be, and they love the experience. Uh, but we we are getting to the next level, and how do we ensure the incentives remain in place, uh, that we make it as easy as possible? And then uh, how do we really ensure uh, those uh, low-income disadvantaged communities can benefit from this transition as well? And that's why you know we're, we were proud to support a couple of bills that Congresswoman Nanette Barragon from LA has introduced recently, one an EV car share bill, putting car share uh, and charging at public housing across the country based on a model of a pilot we've done, Lacey's done here in LA at Rancho San Pedro. And then Another one she just introduced last week um, on e-bike uh, uh, incentives and sharing programs across the country. So how do we keep uh, the uh, the you know the pedal the the foot on our electric uh, yeah. gas pedal? Uh, <laughs> it's still pedal, pedal to the metal, isn't it? It's just all yeah, electric. Yeah, pedal to the metal. <laughs> all electric yeah. vehicle. Uh, because the urgency is there, 
and future generations are not going to ask, you know, oh gosh, uh, or think, gosh, the interest rates were high. Uh, we understand why you didn't slow down, uh, why you slowed down progress to reduce greenhouse gas emissions so we could survive as a species, let alone thrive and have a growing economy to support uh, future generations. They're not going to slow down to to ask that uh, question, you know, to consider that as, as an excuse. So we've got to figure out a way forward, whatever the obstacles are in front of us. Matt Peterson is the president and CEO of the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. He's just back from Dubai for the 2023 UN Climate Change Conference known as COP28. If you have questions for him about his experiences there in Dubai, we're at 866-893-5722. Let's talk more specifically about the clean tech incubator. So what are some of the technologies that are 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 most promising here in Los Angeles and um and recruiting and training a local workforce to to be part of those new technologies? Yeah. Um great question. So our mission is to create an inclusive green economy and we do it in three ways. One, we're incubating uh, startups, uh, clean tech startups, and really leaning in to support underrepresented funders of those startups. Um, come back to that in just a second. We're looking to transform markets through catalytic partnerships. And in our case, we're focused on transportation electrification and clean energy using the Olympics coming to Los Angeles in less than five years now in 2028 as a sense of urgency and a way to get this region to cooperate collaborate in a way that it doesn't always do so. I mean, you you and I know, and many of your listeners know, that there's 88 cities in the county of Los Angeles. La City of Los Angeles is one of those. And there's another million people that live in the unincorporated county uh, parts of, of the county. So how do we come together as a region? So we're using the Olympics as a way to bring people together. And then how do we prepare the workforce? How do we train people to be able to main, uh, diagnose and maintain an electric vehicle charging station or uh, fix a microgrid uh, when it's a non-electrical issue, um, when it's software or maybe an internet connection. So we, we're we're training people to be part of the green workforce for the jobs that are now and that are growing. We're placing those graduates from our programs as they come through and get empowered with information, uh, industry recognized certifications around safety and and knowledge. Uh, and they get placed in paid internships in our startups here in Los Angeles. Companies like Amp Air, which are creating hybrid electric aircraft, moving on to all electric aircraft. So their CEO, uh, co-founder Kevin Nordiker, was with us in Dubai talking about the importance of, of aviation, which is going to take longer to decarbonize, of course, than uh, uh, cars and trucks. Um, uh, similarly, uh, companies like Charger Help, uh, founded by two Black women, one from Compton, one from South LA, who saw the need to maintain and, and, and fix charging stations when they aren't working. And so Charger Help is now uh, a national company, and they are two of the 100 Black women that have raised more than a million dollars in capital for their business in the United States, which is an unbelievable fact, but is something we're also leaning in to help underrepresented founders get access yeah. to capital. How, how, and and um, beyond uh, the founders getting access to capital, how are you really identifying, uh, you know, young people, students, um, whether high school, community college, four-year students, um, to, to make sure that this is a diverse industry here in Los Angeles? What are the ways that you're doing outreach? 
Yeah, we work with community groups to see uh, how we can recruit those that are justice challenged or formerly incarcerated to come into our programs. Um, we uh, we also do all women workforce training programs because we well we've had pretty good diversity. Uh, I would say uh, over fifty percent of um, our workforce training programs, the participants are black and brown individuals. Uh, yet we saw a higher proportion of of male participants. Um, in some cases, 70% in the different cohorts. So we've done two all-female, all-women um, uh, cohorts uh, to uh, both give them the sense that this is something that not only is it possible, but as they share that word of mouth, uh, 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 best kind of marketing there is that they're empowered to do so. And then we've done an opportunity youth program of trying to get younger individuals, uh, 18 to 24-year-olds in our case, um, to be part of the workforce training program. So those sort of intentional efforts help us identify uh, folks that wouldn't necessarily be part of the green economy, but now are empowered and moving on to great jobs. Uh, we had one uh, uh, one workforce training participant talk at our transportation electrification summit yesterday. He he went through the training program, got played, placed in a paid internship, and then just got hired uh, by a company called Green Wealth that's out there installing ch charging stations. So these kinds of success stories are what we want, not just training people, but getting them actually into green jobs to be part of the green economy. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today, talking about your experiences in Dubai at COP28, the UN Climate Change Conference, as, as well as what's happening with LA Cleantech Incubator. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Larry. Matt Peterson is the president and CEO of the L.A. Clean Tech Incubator. It's Air Talk on L.A. is 89.3. You might have heard that this morning Harvard's board voted unanimously to keep the president of Harvard in the wake of troubling testimony before a House committee last Friday. She was one of, of uh, three college presidents who had a difficult time delineating between free speech that's protected on campus and speech that is actually dangerous to students on campus. Uh, this came to a head with Congress member Elise Stefanik's question about uh, whether advocating for genocide of Jews uh, violates uh, the policies of, of the schools. And the college presidents had a tough time uh, saying essentially it depends. When we come back, we'll talk about what are the challenges with setting the boundaries between protected speech on campus and that which is truly threatening to students. We'll come back with our guests in just one minute. Later this hour on Air Talk, the best way to conduct layoffs. We'll hear from experts. But first, we turn our attention to the fallout from testimony on Capitol Hill Friday. Yesterday, the University of Pennsylvania's president, Liz McGill, stepped down, as did the chair of the Board of Trustees of Penn, uh, in the wake of the testimony from three college presidents uh, before the House. 
let's listen to uh, a selection uh, of what happened. This before the House Education and Workforce Committee, Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York asking the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn if calling for the genocide of Jews violated campus code of conduct. The first response you hear is from MIT President Sally Kornbluth, uh, and then uh, Representative Stefanik turns to the now former uh, UPenn President Liz McGill. If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does have, not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context, when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. So those would not be according to the MIT's code of conduct or rules? That would be um, investigated as harassment, if pervasive and severe. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I, I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. Well, uh, obviously did not go well on Capitol Hill. And again, uh, the president of uh, UPenn on Saturday stepped down, as did the chair of the board. With us, Doug Belkin, who covers higher education for The Wall Street Journal. Doug, thank you for joining us. This hearing really, in a nutshell, brought to the fore many concerns that have been expressed uh, about conduct on campus related to free speech, virtues, harassment, or downright threat to students. Um, what's been the response now on the, beyond the, the personnel uh, response to it, uh, the response to campuses when it's come to trying to, to better delineate what's protected speech and what are threats? You know, I don't know that this was a, a tremendous uh, source of focus until the last couple of months, really. The schools have pretty much... Um, made calls they broadly you know they, they pay a lot of lip service to free speech but they uh, are protecting folks who they consider part of a protective class and that has been uh, the way they've moved forward um then they sort of shifted gears when it came to um jewish students on campus and that's why this thing blew up so much well, and, and um, one of the one of the big issues here is is sort of the legalese that the presidents were using in this hearing. And uh, what's your sense of how much of a concern this is to colleges and universities? We already have a lawsuit against UC Berkeley uh, on behalf of Jewish students and a number of Jewish organizations alleging anti-Semitism on on campus. Um, how much of this is concerned about legal vulnerability? They have legal vulnerability. They have reputational vulnerability. They have um, vulnerability from uh, you know donors who are who are going to give or not give. Um, they're in the crosshairs on a number of ways. You know, the K 
kids are deciding where to apply to schools now. This is going to, it could impact that. So their reputations on every front are impacted. Their, the Department of Education has named a bunch of schools, including Harvard, um, uh, and you know they're investigating investigating them for civil rights by infractions. So uh, they're in the hot seat, uh, you know, six ways from Sunday right now. We're talking with Doug Belkin, Wall Street Journal reporter. Also with us is Greg Lukianov, who's the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, known as FIRE. He's also author of The Canceling of the American Mind, Cancel Culture Undermines Trust, Destroys Institutions, and Threatens Us All. But there is a solution. Greg, good to have you with us today. Um, One of the things that... A little surprising for me is, you know, we've had in recent years many of these schools that have really brought to the fore students who feel intimidated or threatened um, their feelings. And if, you know, schools have, have canceled speakers, they've, they've allowed, in some cases, students to shout down guest speakers who have been brought in. Your organization's been involved in many of those. In this case, involving these Jewish students, it seems like a different tack is being taken. I wonder if you can elaborate on that from your perspective. Sure. Um, the thing that made it difficult to sort of uh, root for the president of Harvard or the president of Penn is that these are schools that have terrible track records on free speech. And I think that you saw a little bit of a boy who cried wolf kind of effect in Congress that essentially when um, they were trying to you know, act like they were very good and consistent on free speech, nobody believed them. And just to give you to say what caused me to say that. We do uh, the largest study of student opinion on free speech ever conducted. We also have the largest databases on uh, professor cancellations, which means you know, attempts to get them fired, students, um, deplatform, uh, student cancellations, deplatforming, and speech codes. And we evaluated 248 schools last year, and Harvard and Penn finished dead last um, in, in that entire list. So they haven't been uh, they haven't been great on free speech in the, uh, in, in the past. Now that doesn't mean that they actually got the answers uh, wrong in many cases. They just didn't argue it very clearly or persuasively. Well, and and so where do you see the line? I mean, you're an advocate of of even disturbing speech, a speech that mm-hmm. that some would say is just morally offensive. That being protected on campus. So in this case of anti-Semitic speech, yes. where is the line? You know, I think the First Amendment law actually makes a great deal of sense on this. And so, uh, for example, threats are not protected. And by the way, we are seeing an uptick in legitimate true threats on campus. I make no bones about that. We saw a student rightfully arrested in Cornell uh, for making threats. But the standard there is placing some a reasonable person in fear of bodily harm or death. Discriminatory harassment is severe, persistent, and pervasive. You you, you heard actually Kornbluth, uh, who I, I think did the best job of the three presidents, um, at, you know, explain this. A discriminatory uh, conduct um, that is you know re- re- repeated um, incitement. Uh, th- that's a tougher standard. That you know that means that uh, it's the incitement to imminent lawless action that's likely to actually take place. But I'd say probably the most frustrating thing about this discussion is the conflation of Intifada and From the River to the Sea to it being a very clear call for uh, call for genocide. And I know that you have listeners who are like, no, no, that's exactly what it means. But the problem here is students don't understand that. Um, th- th- there's um, something going on uh, like that you can follow on social media right now 
where students were interviewed and shown a map about, you know, here's the river, here's the sea. And they didn't actually previously understand that that implies um, Israel went entirely off the map. And as, as soon as they um, actually got that, th th they were much less supportive of, of, the, uh, of the chant. Well, we had uh, UC Berkeley Law School Dean Erwin Chemerinsky with us a few weeks ago. Erwin wrote an op-ed in the L.A. Times about uh, in being critical of administration at Cal for not speaking up about anti-Semitic activity on, on the UC Berkeley campus. But uh, Dean Chemerinsky made the point that though he perceived from the river to the sea as anti-Semitic, as calling for the elimination of Israel, he he still believed that should be protected. He just wanted administrators speaking from their moral position to to decry that, to denounce that, but not to stop the students from expressing the speech of saying that. And, and, and when it comes to you know, the reality of anti-Semitism on a lot of campuses, this has been made. I've been doing this for 22 years, um, and it's very clear to me there has been an increase in anti-Semitism. Uh, and calling it out, you know, is, is something that you, uh, particularly like when it affects your own students is something that universities have every right to do. Um, th th there's a question about whether or not campuses should be talking about, you know, uh, international geopolitics. Um, and, and I actually think they should be issuing fewer political statements about the outside world. But when it comes to your campus, um, this actually happened at Brown, where um, the President Paxson actually self-censored a speech she was giving, where she made the argument that students should not be afraid to wear their yarmulkes on campus because it felt like it was a hostile crowd. And that's that speaks volumes that she'd be afraid to actually say wow. that in, in, in a talk. Let me bring into the conversation Jason in Monrovia, executive director of the Jewish Federation of the Greater San Gabriel and Pomona Valleys. Jason, thank you for, for joining us. Your thoughts on, on what came out of this testimony last week before Congress? I think what it, what, it, what it illustrates was not only the difficulty university presidents have, but also the unpreparedness that universities have to not just protect free speech, but to really do its main job, which is also to educate students and protect them. Um, one of the challenges that are facing Jewish students right now is that their identity is being attacked because they are seen as a proxy for Israel because of that confluence of Judaism and Jews and Israel. And what's happening is Jew Jewish students are afraid to even say anything or wear anything because of the fear of being intimidated or targeted by those that are supporting the Palestinians. Um, and then the misinformation that's being conveyed all across the country through media with this understanding that it's perceived that Israel is attacking Palestinians when in fact they're attacking Hamas. And so Jewish students are truly being are scared and intimidated. And it's not so much the free speech. It's really more so a matter of when that speech turns to hate and intolerance that is becoming a major issue for Jewish students right now. Jason, let me just say that in attacking Hamas, of course, Israeli forces have killed thousands of Palestinian civilians in Gaza, and that's totally fair game to to have a debate about Israel's military response 
to those vicious attacks by Hamas in Israel. Um, but um, but I, I want to get to the point you make, Jason, about Jewish students feeling intimidated, that they, they can't be open about um, who they are as Jews and or, or you know, wear a yarmulke or identify themselves. So let me go back to Greg Lukyanov of FIRE. What is the best way, in your view, for schools to create an environment where Jewish students are protected to be who they are, but students are free to criticize Israel? I think that has to start from day one on campuses. I think they need to have orientations that emphasize communications across lines of difference. Um, and de- uh, using free speech in its proper role on, in a- academia, which is partially to depolarize, to, to, to make people actually realize that, that in the grand scheme of things, you don't really know all that much. And you'll notice that a school that actually hasn't had a huge blow up and just simple shouting matches, harassment, intimidation is Dartmouth. And that's partially because Dartmouth has committed to going back before the crisis. And that's one of the most important things is put these things in place before your campus has a crisis um, th- about dialogue about Israel Palestine. Palestine. And if, and the thing is, it's like it doesn't solve all problems, but of course, it makes it much harder to think of your opponent um, on that issue as being either stupid, evil, or for that matter, not human. Jason's point that Jewish students are being made a proxy for Israel. Um, how can schools decouple the religious identity of students on campus from what a nation does? You know, I think that that's part of the problem of the, that we talk about. My uh, co-author Jonathan Haidt in my book, Coddling the American Mind, and we also talk about this in, the, in our latest book, Canceling of the American Mind. Um, that um, unfortunately, I think that's baked into a lot of the what I consider to be an overly reductive, uh, overly simplistic uh, ideology that's sort of baked into DEI, where essentially life is a story of. Um, good, uh, good oppressed and bad oppressors, um, and I don't. I, I'm, that's why I have very little confidence that under the existing DEI structure that so many of these universities have invested billions in, um, that uh, that this that you can actually have real progress on this without actually reconsidering the, that entire adventure. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, DEI means diversity, equity, and inclusion, and uh, they are policies surrounding it that many companies use, academic organizations. They're highly prevalent in, in American organizations. And so your your argument is that they they simplified whoever the more powerful entity is. If, if When there's a conflict with a weaker entity, that the powerful entity is the bad guy and, and the weaker entity is the noble one that's that's what you're saying it's it's more or less avoidable if you actually kind of create uh, gradations of oppression and oppression being the most important thing as part of someone's identity and and i think it's it it wildly oversimplifies the complexity of, of of human reality jason thank you for your call i appreciate it very much greg i want to thank you for joining us i appreciate it look Thanks forward to having you on again soon and he's the author of the canceling of the american mind cancel culture undermines trust destroys institutions and threatens us all but there is a solution and my thanks to wall street journal higher education and national news reporter doug belkin who wrote a terrific piece which really um, put together the aspects of what's happening on college campus in the wake of the war in Gaza. You're listening to Air Talk on LA, is 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk about whether humane layoffs are a pipe dream or achievable. It's Air Talk on LA, is 89.3.
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Arole is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of congee, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lamert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA is a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been a big year for layoffs, particularly in tech. Job losses there totaled about a quarter of a million. Some layoffs come with quite elaborate explanations from CEOs. That's what happened with Spotify's recent uh, big cutback in its staff. McDonald's closed their offices in order to conduct layoffs virtually. So companies employ different methods when they engage in layoffs. But the question is, what is the best, the most humane way of doing it? What protects the company's interests but is sensitive to the emotions that soon-to-be former employees have? Writing on this topic is Wall Street Journal reporter Lindsay Ellis, who covers the workplace, young professionals, and business education. Her recent piece is titled The Long Goodbye, Why Laid-Off Employees Are Still on the Job. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Lindsay Ellis. We we appreciate it. Uh, And you share with us how the thinking about layoffs has evolved into how companies should conduct these. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, so many companies this year have cut staff and there's an acknowledgement that even if you grapple with all of those good questions you raised, you know, should you do it virtually or in person or all at once versus a series of cuts, you know, there's no one right way to do this. And many employers, in addition to the legal requirements and around notice periods and the like, you know, they also are, in some cases, making an effort to approach this compassionately, you know, because their eyes are on their reputations in an effort to recruit the best talent in the future. They, they don't want to blow it. You know, one of the the changes, of course, with layoffs now is with social media available, people can go on blast and, and, you know, second guess and criticize the company. And any organization that's engaging in layoffs is open to being second guessed and being challenged about what they've done. How, How does that sort of public critique and the threat of that factor in? That's a great point. I mean, I think you can definitely see that you know, questioning around the the decision whether to lay off people online versus in person. You know, when many offices were closed over the last several years, a lot of staff reductions took place over Zoom. 
Um, these days, far more offices are open, at least several days a week. Um, but one of my colleagues, Chip Cutter, has reported that even so, Zoom can often be easier on the people affected. I mean, they don't feel like, wow, I slept all the way into the office. I sat in traffic to get bad news. On the other hand, you know, people who have been affected by these Zoom or or massive online layoffs, you know, there's a risk that that could feel impersonal as well, especially if it's not followed up with, you know, in a timely manner with concrete information and the transition and severance packages and the like. So there's a lot to consider on that front. Well, and if if an employee's going to criticize you for doing it personally and calling you, yeah, that's kind of a no win. I mean, if because if you'd ask the employee ahead of time, how would you rather be laid off? Would they say, well, I'd just rather, you know, get an email or uh, or or do it over the phone? I, I wonder what people would say. Let me bring in an expert to talk about it. Distinguished Professor Emeritus from the University. University of Colorado Denver Business School, Wayne Cassio. Professor Cassio, good to have you with us today. Are, are, is, is there general agreement on what's the best way in which to, to lay off employees? Well, I, I, I think that I, I agree with uh, exactly what Lindsay was saying. Um, there, there is no one best way. And, you know, if we look at the uh, layoffs that are taking place, this year, uh, Spotify being the most recent one, but the tech layoffs before that, most of that was due to the fact that management overhired. They got too aggressive with adding staff uh, during the pandemic um, when demand for their goods or services went way up. <clears throat> and now that it's dropped, uh, they have really little choice but to cut their costs, especially if they think that this is going to last for a long time. Um, it's, uh, one of the things we know is that this, this causes disruption in companies for at least a year after the, uh, the layoffs take place. And in the, you know, in the case of uh, Spotify, they've had uh, already three rounds this year. So you can imagine the upheaval that's going on. And what people really want to know, especially the ones the survivors who remain is, uh, is do you have a plan? Uh, how are we going to be better off going forward um, once you uh, implement these layoffs? And, uh, and, and so the rationale becomes very important. It's a lot more than we're just trying to cut costs. And, and the companies that seem to do this best actually uh, see layoffs as as more of a last resort than a first resort. Uh, that is, they try to implement a number of alternatives um, <clears throat> before they have to resort to laying off full-time employees. And uh, some of those alternatives, for example, uh, could be laying off temporary help, certainly reducing uh, travel and entertainment expenses over time, even implementing furloughs, which would lay off people temporarily and the key thing for managers to consider uh, is, is this a, a, a temporary uh, economic phenomenon that's uh, maybe part of the business cycle? Or is this a, a real structural change in our industry, such as a, a blockbuster drug going off patent? And you know you're going to lose the revenues for a long period of time. Yes. So 
These are key considerations for managers to think about. So is it important then for companies that are seeing their their labor costs higher than than are sustainable to share that with their employees? Or is that worse? Because then there's a sense of dread. They feel, you know, the knife hanging over their head that it's going to drop at some point and their job's going to be cut. Uh, or, yeah, you know, the hardest thing for managers is to, uh, to see their employees as the source of the solution rather than the source of the problem. And people can become amazingly creative uh, when they know their own jobs are at stake. So if the real objective is to uh, is to reduce costs, why not ask employees for suggestions on best ways to do that? So uh, when when you hear about companies that use email to to um, let people go, is that ever justified? Uh, I, not in my view, not in my view. Uh, this is very impersonal. Uh, you're talking about uh, terminating somebody's livelihood, and you can't delegate that. Um, it, it's got to be the immediate supervisor who does it. Now, I know with a lot of workers uh, who are operating remotely, they're not in the office physically there. Um, you, you need to have some type of uh, connection, uh, for example, video conferencing or Zoom, uh, and that would be fine, but but an email layoff is is just heartless, and um, and I, I would recommend that no manager ever resort to that as the way to do it. When we come back, we'll talk about um, the practice that's often used in the corporate world of having employees leave the building just as soon as they're laid off. Obviously, that doesn't endear uh, the employee to the company that's cutting the position. I'd like to hear from you. If you've been laid off, what did your former employer do? How did they do it? And what were your thoughts about it? What would you have rather they've done? Or if you were impressed with how they laid you off, that is possible. I'd be interested in hearing uh, what ways that they did that. We're at 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. You can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in one minute. Speaking of holiday gifts, go to las.com. You'll see our holiday gift guide. I actually put together a list of Books that I think are very helpful in understanding Los Angeles, from historic works to more current uh, ones that have been written. I describe the reasons that I chose the books and how they helped inform me better about the city uh, that I grew up in. I'm a fourth-generation Angelino and nevertheless learned a great deal from the selection of books. You can find that at LAist.com on our holiday gift guide. Right now, we're talking about the most effective and humane ways of conducting layoffs. I'd like to hear from you if you've been laid off during your professional career 
what did you like or not like about the way that your former employer conducted the layoff? We're at 866-893-5722. If you were part of a team that carried out layoffs and you've had a chance to think about it in the time since and uh, you have a critique of the way that your team carried out the layoffs, things that you learned that worked or didn't, I'd like to hear about that as well at 866-893-5722. Lindsay Ellis, reporter with the Wall Street Journal, covers the workplace. And Wayne Cassio is distinguished professor emeritus, University of Colorado, Denver School of Business. Uh, Lindsay, is this an area where there is a significant amount of research that employers can call on to to try and find out, you know, what 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 has evidence that it works? It's a great question. When it comes to research, I mean, when I speak with HR professionals, they are um, very much in tune with one another and professional groups and professional societies um, to, you know, share best practices, share sort of leading trends in, you know, regular conferences and the like. On the research side, I, Professor Cassio, you you probably can speak to that better than I can in terms of what sort of you know is is shown to be most effective. Yeah, Professor, is is this something that's that's actually um, objectively studied? Well, you were talking about um, people being escorted off the premises immediately, and uh, one of the things we know, clinical psychologists tell us that. Uh, people need time to grieve um, after layoffs. You know, many of these folks have worked with colleagues for many years and uh, and and they may never see them again. And just uh, to escort them out is, uh, we know, leads to long-term uh, health consequences, adverse consequences for, for those being laid off. And, and we know that the rate of heart attacks among managers doing the layoffs um, actually spikes way up in the next two weeks following the layoffs. Um, we know, you know this was a popular practice during the 1990s and the early 2000s, but, but today we realize that except for certain sensitive positions, for example, somebody in IT who has access to sensitive employee data um, and, and could sabotage that data, uh, or institute a cyber attack on their employer, yes, maybe they need to leave right away and, and have an escort um, <clears throat> and, and have their uh, credentials disabled. But for the vast majority of people, no. And we, there's a lot of research that indicates that companies, some companies actually use staggered layoffs um, where uh, Lucent did this, for example, where they gave employees the choice. They knew they were going to be laid off and they had a choice over a three-month period to uh, to indicate exactly when they would uh, have their last day, and and that's kind of exactly the opposite of summarily escorting people off the premises, and it worked very very well, and led to enhancements in the firm's reputation. David in Santa Monica, you were laid off. Uh, share with us what that experience was like. Sure. I was laid off uh, really in my early 50s, and and my company treated me fairly. Um, it was not a complete surprise. I was remote. My boss was on the East Coast, 
Um, and she called up and we had a nice conversation, but we both knew where this was going. Um, because it, it was a very large national company and these things were happening. And, and she let me know they treated me fairly. I stuck around for another, I'm sure it was at least another month or two as things wound down here on the West Coast. But uh, I have to say it was hands down the best thing that ever happened to me. I was comfortable in my job and, and this kicked me out of the nest. I was coasting yeah. and I got kicked out of the nest. And, and I was fortunate enough to land elsewhere, and it was a challenging job, lasted another 16, 17 years, and I just had a wonderful time afterwards. So that's great. It works my experience so well. was positive. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. Now, you indicated you, you worked, would you say, a month or more beyond when you were told you were going to be laid off. Um, was it extremely difficult to do your job during that time, knowing it was ending, or, or was it in a way kind of freeing and um, the stakes didn't feel so high as you worked. No, it wasn't hard at all uh, for me. I, again, my company treated me fairly. I had been with them for 20 some odd years. They trusted me to do my job until the end and wrap things up. I guess it was, you know, they just expected me to do that. And that's you know what you do. You yeah, to be paid. a pro. So yeah. My job. Yeah. David, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Professor Cassio, your, your thoughts about David's experience and how positive it was. Yeah, I think that's uh, it, it's great to hear, uh, but it clearly is the exception rather than the rule. We know that, uh, for example, the higher your salary, the longer it's going to take you to get rehired on average. Uh, there will always be exceptions to that. Uh, but for, for many people, that's, that's not the experience that they have. Although I really like what David said about the fact that his company allowed him to continue to work even after the decision had been made. What about severance and um, the importance of that to um, employees that are being cut, their, their feelings about the experience? Yeah. Professor? Uh, well, severance is not legally required, uh, but many companies do it. They, they refer to it as severance in lieu of notice instead of notice. And um, it, it's important to, uh, to, to think carefully about that and to, uh, and to be generous with employees, especially in terms of uh, continuation of their health insurance, for example. Um, and the reason is the people left behind are looking for signals about how those who were let go were treated. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're asking themselves the me questions. What about me and my job and my future? And so uh, a company sends signals in how it handles uh, those who are let go. I want to thank you for being with us. University of Colorado, Denver School of Business, Distinguished Professor Emeritus Wayne Cassio. And my thanks to Lindsay Ellis, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, whose recent piece took a look at the way laid-off employees are uh, leaving their jobs. It's titled The Long Goodbye. Thank you, Lindsay, for being with us. Stay tuned. Coming up next, it's NBR's Here and Now. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9, right after Morning Edition for Southern California's biggest conversation, Air Talk on LAist 89.3.
Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.